Hey, did you just have a meeting with a donor and they told you something really, really important and you have no place to put it except for like maybe an Excel spreadsheet or, I don't know, a random piece of paper in your office? Go to DonorDoc.com. Get a CRM system that works. Get a donor database system that works. Get something that gives you beautiful reports and beautiful dashboards that even your crankiest board member will love. Go to DonorDoc.com. Use the code word do good better at checkout and get a month free. DonorDoc.com. Your organization is awesome, but sometimes you want to be even awesomer. It's time to get your fundraising on with your host, fundraising expert and author, Patrick Kirby. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the official Do Good Better podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Kirby. And of course, we talk about things that our small and medium-sized nonprofit friends can use to do good better. I've got a great episode for you today. Um, we've, we've talked a lot over the course of, um, I don't know, this pandemic kind of coming out of it, uh, anything that we've had happen, sort of George Floyd and everything beyond. There's a lot of issues of equity, a lot of uh, conversations about inclusion, some tough conversations we've had specifically on this podcast. If you were an HR or you're one of the uh, number of nonprofiteers that both are the executive director and HR director all at the same time, or you're a board member, uh, this is one of those episodes that I am so excited to bring to you um, because we're going to talk a little bit about uh, justice within your HR department, and it's going to be great. And I've got some exclusive things for you today, even before in advance of a book that's coming out. So I'm super excited about it. Uh, Rita Sever is with us. She is a an author, a consultant, a trainer, a coach. Uh, she wrote a, a fantastic book, uh, Supervision Matters. And she's got a brand new book coming out in August, Leading for Justice. I got my hands on an early copy, so you can totally be jealous. Uh, Rita, welcome to the official Do Good Better podcast. Thank you, Patrick. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm very excited about our conversation today. Um, even in our little uh, pre-chat, got me all jazzed up uh, to talk about some of these things. Um, I, I can't wait to talk about your uh, your new book coming out. But if somebody's kind of scrolling around, they're like, okay, well, this is, seems like an interesting podcast. I like all of these things, but they don't know who you are or what you do. I would like you to give the people what they want, which is sort of a 5,000 foot view on, uh, on who you are, what you do, and, uh, and why we're chatting today. Okay, sounds good. Um, so I'm going to go back to my childhood for this 5,000 foot view because I have recently connected what I do to where I started. I grew up the youngest of six children. And as you can imagine, I felt unseen, unheard. And I said, it's not fair a whole lot of times. <laughs> and so when I started working, I was drawn to the nonprofit sector and I wanted to help make the world a better place. And I've spent my whole career working in and with nonprofits um, and I'm on the way, in the way of nonprofits. One day I was working in an AIDS agency. There were four employees and the ED came in and said, we just get a grant. We're going to double our size. I need somebody to hold these personnel files. And I said, well, that sounds fun. I'll do that. Not having a clue what HR was. I learned, <laughs> I got a degree in organizational psychology. I found a great mentor and I 
got lots of training. And so I went into HR. I combined organizational psychology and HR in my work. I worked in a few other nonprofits. And when I started my own business, I focused on supervision because I saw what a difference it made, both positively and negatively. So now I work primarily with social justice organizations. I also learned along the way a lot about racism and privilege, and I weave that into everything I do. So now, as you said, I do coaching, I do consulting, and I do training around staffing and supervision. Before we dive into uh, sort of some of the equity pieces and some of the justice issues that you're writing in your new book, um, the nonprofit world is littered with organizations with uh, one or two folks who wear 10,000 different hats. And I'm sure you've bumped into one or more of those individuals who feel overwhelmed in the HR realm. Yes. Um, I, from your years of experience within this, uh, what do you say? And again, you could use five hours to talk about this, I'm sure. But as a calming uh, uh, sort of effect, please. Uh, to those who just feel overwhelmed with the 10 billion things they have to do in a small organization, how do you go into a group that says, okay, you can't do everything. Um, it's okay. And and how do you give that permission to not be perfect on every angle or what are the things you need to concentrate with? Uh, and how do you bring that up? Yeah. Um, you focus on people, you know, taking care of people. So training supervisors, so at, no matter how big the organization is, everyone has a person they can connect with, hopefully, and, and be safe with. And that is really the basis of protecting the organization, which is the first check mark on HR. There's a whole lot of other ones, but that's why people talk about HR at first. So really supporting staff, being humble and aware about what you can and can't do and keep adding what you can when you can. But yeah, the overwhelm doesn't help anybody. No, it doesn't. And I love that because I think people are always looking for that first step. They're always looking for the, what the heck can I do first? And can I concentrate on a item so that I can get my feet under me so that I can go to the next piece and people first take right. care of your people first. I think it's such wonderful advice. Um, so um, I'm going to dive right into the upcoming book that you have, Leading for Justice. It's uh, Supervision, HR, and Culture. Um, wonderful book for the times that we live in now. What made you write this? Uh, and what was your sort of inspiration behind a, uh, a justice HR book? Right. Well, as I said, I work primarily with social justice organizations. and Actually, a few years ago, I started thinking about writing a book that at the time I called Supervising for Justice. Mm -hmm. But then I started noticing that I was getting more and more calls about the HR component and realizing that, yes, HR is how you operationalize the values of any organization. And the culture is how that plays out in an organization. And so I my style of writing is to write bite-sized pieces. I send out a mostly monthly newsletter and that's how I tend to think. And so I started just giving myself topics to write about and then work to put it into a cohesive whole. And that's how the book came to be. 
I like and the that. timing ended up being really, I think it's a really important book for organizations that are realizing we need to do more in this area. And I think I like the way that you put that is you need to do more. Uh, my, I've noticed at uh, organizations of all shapes and sizes that most HR policies probably have a couple of pages dedicated to inclusion and all those delightful things. Outside of it being in a book to check a box, um, maybe not so much. What What's the difference between an organization that maybe has a policy about this and then one that's active? Because, again, you're going to get audited on a couple of things. You're probably going to have a speaker come in and to your board of directors, and they're going to go, hey, we should talk about inclusion. You're like, yes, we should. And then you write a couple of uh, paragraphs, you adopt it, and you move on. Mm-hmm. Why is that not good, especially not good enough, but not good in general. Exactly. That's a good distinction, Patrick, because when that happens, when there is a policy stated and it doesn't happen, staff feel disappointed at the least and betrayed at the most. Um, There's sort of a psychological contract that happens when you write a policy that staff go, okay, this is important. You wouldn't have written a policy if this wasn't important. But if you don't follow through, it doesn't work. And so it's important to keep going on what does it mean? What do we need to do to be inclusive? And of course, the obvious thing is you need to talk to people and ask them what's working, what's not working, what are we doing right, what are we doing wrong? And you'll hear big things like there's no people of color in our leadership. And you'll hear little things like, whenever I mention my trans partner, people shut down. That might be a little thing because it's a conversation, but it's a big thing to that person. There is a very clear mention or notice there that they are not included. And so talking and acting. I, I, uh, I, I love this because, and I, I never mentioned names, but uh, former uh, groups that I worked for would always do an annual survey. And, and, if you're, and if you're thinking about it from like, I don't, I don't even know where to begin on these tough conversations. I don't even know why this is a big issue. Uh, annual survey come out every year. Uh, we get the survey results and we'd sit on them. And then um, we would release them about a month before the next survey that we would send out. And then um, the survey results would be like, yep, that makes sense. Everybody knows that these are issues. And then we take the survey again. And then the same issues would be on the same, like it would be the same percentage, but you never did anything about it. And it became a joke. And we would laugh about, and I was in the C-suite area. Like we would laugh about it. Like, well, here's another survey of the same results, doing the same thing, expecting different results. It was just crazy. So if you ever get frustrated about an organization or something that, is almost laughable. That's what it is about. But then the stakes are so much higher because it involves a lot of equity, a lot of justice, a lot of issues that you don't like that aren't more of like, what's your stay at home policy? What is your like a PTL policy? It's what do we do to make conversations a lot easier within our organizations? One of the things that I think a lot of organizations have a problem with is if they ask tough questions, they're going to get tough answers. Exactly. And I don't think a lot of organizations are prepared to have the honesty in which the answers, what's the first step you have to do there? 
yes, that's very true that, you know, it's true. You shouldn't ask if you don't want to hear and aren't ready to act. But even saying this is really important. I don't quite know where to start, but I'm going to find out. And I'm by next week, next month, I will tell you one thing we can do to move this forward. Right. And that that is it's not enough in the big picture, but it is enough in the immediate time to say we're paying attention. We're hearing you. We hear you is the most important message. Right. But then you do have to follow it up with action. Right. I, I want to just say that the real idea of inclusion is do people feel like they belong? Mm. Are they part of the org? I don't want to talk about a family environment. I have problems with that metaphor. But do they <laughs> feel like they're part of the team? Are, can they be themselves? Are they safe to be who they are? Um, it goes back to what you originally said was the most important thing and piece to HR in general, even the busiest of people who wear many hats is it's a people first. Mm-hmm. That would make sense. Do people, yeah. do the people first feel like they uh, belong? I think um, a lot of folks within HR who have been there for a very long time, it would be their reaction is probably, Hey, this is just conform and you'll get along fine. Mm-hmm. And and I don't I don't mean to diminish that perspective from someone who has who generationally doesn't sort of um, who isn't up to date or isn't up to speed with the the quickness in which a lot of equity and a lot of inclusion is coming at them. How do you have those conversations from organizations who might be very long in the tooth, hundred year organizations who have a lot of t- people who have tenure of 20, 30 years? And now all of a sudden that this is becoming an issue or now that that the organization is bringing some of this stuff up and their hesitancy to accepting some of these hard conversations is like, my God, they're all changing everything. This is all, uh, how do you begin those critical conversations with the people who've been there the longest to, to almost softly bring this up. Uh, Cause I feel like there's nonprofits of uh, whatever your size is. If you're going to come at them with a hammer with, you know, inclusion and justice and, and sort of equity, that's a lot to take from someone who doesn't think, who hasn't thought about this ever. Yeah. Good point. Um, I think I would approach it in a true prong manner. Hmm. One would be an invitation and the other would be not a threat, but, be careful. Yeah. (laughs) The first one would be, what do you want in your organization? How, I assume you want engagement. I assume you want productivity. What else? Mm -hmm. And once they tell you that, then I have a, I have some ideas of how you can get it. Let's talk about how you can be more user-friendly to your staff, Mm -hmm. because you want to hear about what's working and not working Mm -hmm. and telling people to conform isn't going to make, isn't going to last. It's not going to work. It's really saying, do it the way I would do it. Do it the way we've always done it. And that isn't working anymore. The other half of the conversation would be, you really are opening yourself up for liability when you don't pay attention to this. Yeah. Because you are creating the circumstances, the culture where 
microaggressions could slip down that slippery slope into harassment Mm -hmm. and you don't want to go there. Yeah. Is, is there, and, and this is from an outside of the HR world into a person who's lived this, especially in, um, um, the type of organizations that you have worked with over the last number of years. Is there a responsibility for each party to meet in the middle, or is it an obligation for one that has, um, who uh, gets priority over another? And what I mean by that is, okay, we've got an organization that has never talked about uh, justice or equity or anything, right? And now it is at the forefront. And, and do individuals come at it from this side is not right and this side is wrong? Or how do you start some of those conversations you can meet in the middle and say that this is something that we need to talk with first and foremost? Because I, I, again, we live, I live in flyover country Midwest and a lot of people are cling and hang on to what they know or believe has always been right in whatever perspective that they come from. And we want to do this in a way that um, makes everyone feel great about doing the best and the right thing. How do you start that conversation where you meet in in the middle from both sides, where you don't have somebody who is so aggressively uh, transformative within an organization, somebody who's so anti-transformation uh, in the organization, where do you start on the spectrums that I can't, that I would imagine are so extreme when you begin this process of sort of developing policies and procedures and then action steps? Right. Yes, it's a tricky terrain to mm-hmm. maneuver through, but I think you start with the common ground. And for nonprofits, that's the mission. We are all here for the mission. We are grounded in the mission. And to do that, our work well, we have to work internally together. And we have to work better together. To reference your podcast, we have to do this better. And so that's the start of the conversation. And having some facilitated conversations so that people don't feel like they are adversaries. You're on the same side. We want to take the steps we can to do this work better for our clients and our staff. And what is that going to look like for us? Let's make our pie in the sky list and then let's make it doable. Well, maybe it'll take us five years. Maybe it'll take us 10 years, but let's start the journey together. I I love that from a long-term standpoint too. I, I think, um, I think, putting into perspective that you don't put necessarily a timestamp on the need to get everything done in a, in a, in a shortened period of time that feels overwhelming to a lot of a organizations and B people. Um, but it's that step process, the same way that you would have a relationship with a donor who doesn't know your organization, but wants to give you a major gift is there is a understanding that you need time to work through that, whether they have the affinity for your organization or not, whether they have the capacity to give you or not, you're going to find that out through conversations. But it's having that first conversation that is that starting point, that journey that you can that you can begin. Um, you and I both have this uh, shared belief that a lot of these issues within HR could be resolved a lot quicker with self-awareness. Um, we've talked about it a lot on this podcast in a number of different ways, um, but I'd like to hone in on that because I think it, it, it 
plays right into uh, a couple of, of, of work from home cultures that I want to get to as, as part of this podcast goes on. But describe for me what self-awareness could be when we're starting a lot of these hard conversations. Because honestly, I think it, knowing where you sit from what position you sit really opens up the doors to going, ah, having a lot of couple of aha moments. Not that you are ignorant to the fact that you didn't know that this was an issue, but just acknowledging your place is a really good starting point, right? Absolutely. Yes. And it's the critical point between knowing that there's a problem or a concern or an issue out there and recognizing I'm a piece of this. Um, I always think about uh, feedback because feedback is a major tool of self-awareness. It's often how we start going, oh, that's how they see me. Um, Or I came across that way. That's not at all what I meant. I think of feedback like the um, new things on a a car. I don't know how new they are, but the cars that beep. If you get too close to the line or back into something, it puts the brakes on. But you get those signals, you have to do something with them. If you just, if the car beeps, but you don't do anything, that's going to be trouble. And that's how I think about feedback too. It's a gift to you. If you're open to it, it can be a gift, but you have to do something with it. So for me, self-awareness is knowing how how I show up, how I act, what I prefer in like, I'm an introvert. That's a big part of my identity. So is being a white person. So I have to know how I show up and how that impacts the work I do and my work with other people. And having a regular practice where I take just a few minutes to think about how did I show up this week? Is there anything I need to clean up? Is there anything I wish I had done better? That goes a long way, both personally mm-hmm. and in the workplace. Um, a lot of folks who don't necessarily talk about this on a regular basis might have a response of like, well, I don't do that. I, this is not my, I didn't, I don't have anything to do with having a racial bone in my body, a racist bone in my body, or I don't really care what anybody does on their own time. I, I don't really care. And they'll come from a position of like, eh, not my, it's not, not my backyard. I'm not, I'm not a part of this problem. Um, and, and acknowledging that they don't want to acknowledge it because they don't think of it as a problem. How do you begin that conversation too? Cause that, I know it has something to do with the self-awareness piece, but like, I don't do that anywhere. I don't use any of those words or any of those slangs on a regular basis. Why is this an issue for me? Right. That's a really great and important question. Um, And I can imagine taking it very slowly and carefully if I was coaching someone who came in that way, because that's a very valid viewpoint to say, I don't get it. Why are people mad at me? I didn't do anything. Um, So part of it is just helping people build their empathy Mm -hmm. of what let's try it on from the other side. What does it look like from somebody who's meeting you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get that you didn't mean anything by what you said, or you didn't do anything. You just showed up and they had an attitude about you. Why would that be? Mm -hmm. Why might they think because you're a white man that you might have 
some ideas or some thoughts or be dangerous to them in any way. Yeah. I get that you, you aren't, you're not, I trust that. And yet I imagine based on history and their personal experiences, they might be a little hesitant to trust you. Mm -hmm. So let's just explore what that's like and try it, look at it from their side. And let's talk about what comes up for you when I say that. Yeah. Is is it a is it a part two in that conversation of let's go and approach those who may have uh, some inkling of 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 your your my perspective? I didn't do anything wrong. I don't do anything wrong. These people are out. These people, right? And I, I think you use it in general terms of like just, I'm just being attacked because I'm a white guy. Is there a is there a time for that conversation on the other end, the individual who, um, from whatever uh, their 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 racial perspective or their sexual identity uh, perspective, come and say, but you have to know their perspective as well, or is it a one sided issue? Because I think from again, uh, from my high seated privileged place. I get to say these things of like, well, I why why is this an issue to me? I didn't do anything from there. Is there a conversation that happens on the other side to understand that we my my I'm using quotes in air quotes now my perspective I didn't understand why that is a, why it's an issue or is it just a one sided conversation? So I think people are really worried about that on the feeling attacked or feeling like I it's my fault that I didn't that I just grew up or I was born in this situation. Mm-hmm. Which I'm going to give you the that I was born this way. Yep, that's the point, right? <laughs> I feel like I feel like that's exactly. the point, right? Exactly, that's the first thing, and I think that there is time for a two way conversation later. Mm-hmm. But first, there that self awareness again, like even getting a chink of self awareness that yes, the way we are born matters. So that's a big part of how we show up and how we're perceived. So starting there, and then eventually having a conversation about, so what, tell me what happened, why were you mad at me when I said that? Right. What, what was that about? Mm-hmm. But they have, we have to build this a little bit of opening for them to hear it. Otherwise, it's just going to escalate. Well, I'm going to bring up something that I'm mad about you. Okay. Just read. I'm going to read from uh, chapter 10 of your upcoming book, Leaving for Justice, which you can get on August 3rd. I'm going to be mad about you because there is a chapter in here called Power and Privilege. The title of this subchapter is Let's Talk About White Do-Gooders. How dare you, Rita? <laughs> White do-gooders. Yes. As jarring as it might seem from a term do-gooders. And we've tried to take it back here at our organization because we know exactly, historically speaking, what that actually means. And so we do our best to actually live out what actually it should mean. But right. as as it, what do you mean by white do-gooders? Yes. And I'm glad we can laugh about this because I knew I was whatever, but I love it. Uh, what is it about white do-gooders that is uh, that we should know about? Okay, well, I appreciate this challenge. Um, and I proudly identify as a white do-gooder too. As I said in my introduction, that's where I started wanting to do good. And I still want to do good. So the reality of being a white person who wants to do good is wonderful. The white do-gooder I'm referring to is in air quotes. And it is the person who, as you referred to before, writes up a policy and then does nothing about it. 
they just do the the bare minimum, the surface work, but they're not challenging themselves. They're not open. They're not listening. They're doing what they think they should do maybe, but not following through with being in relationship with people, which is what you really have to do to do real good, both in fundraising and in HR and supervision, all parts of nonprofit work is about relationship. I accept that as a uh, uh, right. answer. Uh, it is, as I would like to refer to it as the Instagram post of inclusion and justice. Right. It is surface level, nothing more. And and really even the worst part about that, though the worst offenders of the white do-gooder would be the white savior complex, which is look at me, what I can do for all the things. And uh, they chase after that rush of applause of look at what I'm doing, but nothing below surface because it's just checking boxes exactly. rather than diving deeper and having those uh, larger questions. How do we start eliminating that from our day-to-day operations? Is it is it the hard execution of of some of the policies you write? Is it a, is it addressing that? We're I, I think it goes back to self awareness, to be honest with you. But how do we start erasing that from the the negative connotation and taking the back the term "doing good" um, that actually means doing good? Yes, um, I think yes. Those things you mentioned are really important, and I'm sounding like a broken record here, but listening, listening to the people you want to do good to or do good with. Yeah. Um, what do you need? How How is this working for you? Is what I'm doing actually helping you? That's an important part. And as you said, yes, the self-awareness is there. Um, and I guess following the thread that if you want to do an Instagram post, okay, but then what? That's not enough. So what else? How else are you going to show up? Yeah. Read some books, have some conversations. I I don't I don't mind broken record stuff because I think what you're trying to imply is it is simpler than you're making it out to be. Yes. <laughs> Ask questions, listen, be self-aware, and then do something about it. Absolutely. If you keep it as simple as that, my God, I think you'd solve you know a, a big handful of a lot of these uh, questions. So I don't mind the broken record because I think that simplicity and that repetitive nation uh, notion of just understanding and listening for a perspective that's not yours, I think is half the battle to opening up some of the conversations. And and one of the things that um, we're dealing with now in a post-pandemic world, and I I don't know if you bring it up in the book, and I I didn't uh, read in depth for this particular piece, was a post-pandemic work-from-home culture is inherently not inclusive. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that, because I think as a lot of nonprofits open up and a lot of them talk about, you know, what we're going to do next in the working environment, hey, work from home whenever you can and whatever you want to do. Right. How, how fair is that from an HR policy that it wants on the surface? Again, we're inclusive to whatever anybody else wants to do to try to get their work done. Is yeah. that inherently an issue that we need to start addressing? Yes. Yes, it's definitely, I also have the privilege of working from home. And that means I have space, I have quiet, I have Wi-Fi, reliable Wi-Fi, I have tools um, 
equipment, all of that is a privilege and not everyone has that, whether it's the actual equipment or the circumstances that they live in. So it's another area where it's a great idea, but follow it up. What do you need to work at home? What, how can we help? Um, that's both an HR imperative and uh, inclusion imperative. Um, and then figuring out ways that it, um, it works for everyone so that you don't wanna make everyone work at, in the office or work at home if you don't have to, if it's not a pandemic, but a hybrid model is probably the best way to move forward. Everybody has to be in the office Tuesdays and Wednesdays, and we will do team meetings and group work then. Something like that, I think, is going to help. And then backing up the, the offer to work at home with real resources. And again, I think it goes back to your original statement. If it's summed up, it's if you need to do something to kick you off your uh, step forward in the right direction, it's just think about people first. And that's right. all you got to do. And if you could just boil it down to one, one thing. I don't want to rewrite your book, but it's just like people first. There you <laughs> go. It's like 250 pages of just that over and over and over right. again. I think you would probably get the point home. Uh, Rita, it has been a, such a pleasure having you on um, on the on the podcast. Uh, I, I know that uh, I'm excited to dive in even deeper than kind of I did. Flip through, got a, a ton of value out of just even a, a, a not a lot of time diving into it. And I think people are going to really enjoy that. Um, how do people get uh, the book? Where do they go and how do they connect with you if they have additional questions on how to begin these conversations within their, their own nonprofit? So uh, you can get the book anywhere you get books. You can pre-order it now. It's available August 3rd. So Amazon, your local bookstore, bookshop.com is an indie version of Amazon. Um, you can get in touch with me at Rita at supervisionmatters.com. And you can sign up for my newsletter there to keep getting little tidbits of thought as we go along. Um, and yes, I'm excited about my book coming out. And it's been a pleasure talking with you, Patrick. I love these kind of conversations. Well, I think it's, I think it's one that, um, again, having it on a regular basis and on a, in a, in a regular time, you just don't talk about it once a year. You continue to have the conversations and ask better questions and listen. It's the same sort of mindset you have with your donors, with your sponsors, with your volunteers. It's just getting to know them better all the time. You do it for your donors. You do it for uh, your supporters. Why wouldn't you do it internally? And then, and it's really just a different question with, uh, with probably an answer that you want to listen to. And, and really, that's going to be where your understanding comes from. And the more you understand, the more you listen, uh, the more you can do good, reclaim that do-gooders uh, term back for your own organization. Rita, thank you so much for being a guest on the official uh, Do Good Better podcast. We'll put all of the links uh, for uh, your book and uh, how to connect with you in our show notes. It's been a fantastic guest. It's a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you, Patrick. Appreciate it. Look, as someone who listens to the show, you know that I love helping small and medium-sized nonprofits. That's why we bring on the awesome experts and guests that get to talk to you about how to make your organization more awesome. 
So I've got a deal for you. I would like to help you. I would like to work with you. So if you're go to dogooduniversity.com, that's dogooduniversity.com, and you register for one of the courses, I'm going to send you my best-selling book, Fundraise Awesome, or a practical guide to staying sane while doing good for free, because I really want you to do amazing work. Listen, dogooduniversity.com, go pick out something, whether it's a board training or a gratitude training or whatever webinar you want to choose. Um, Use the promo code podcast, take 25% off of anything that you purchase, and I'm going to throw in a book as well because I want you to do awesome, I want you to do awesomer, and I want you to do good better. Go to dogooduniversity.com today.